folks. This is Ron Longlow, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 82 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and this one, I think, is going to be a humdinger. Um, I, I feel like this is really, really important. It's also going to be a long one, and I thought about breaking this up into several episodes, but I just, I don't want to do that. I want to get it all out there in a, in a unit, in a, in a run. So, um, I'm going to put some, um, some little, uh, little breakers in here as we go through this. So, you know, you can listen to this in chunks if you need to. Um, I think it'd be good to listen to it all in in a go, but, um, this, this is big. This is some big stuff in this one, and I understand if you need to pause and take a break. Um, there is every chance I may need to pause and take a break. So I don't know how long this is going to be, um, but it's. I've got a lot of notes here, um, so um, we're going to talk about the cross today. And I've I've done some of this before, um, and I, I'm going to put a link to the to that episode in the show notes. It's a it's a shorter one, um, and I, I'm going to cover some stuff in some detail in there that in that one that I didn't cover that I'm not doing in as great a detail here, but I'm I'm going to approach this a bit differently today um, in two ways. Um, one, I'm going to focus on um, the story of the cross and what it means, mostly according to the Gospels and not as much um, according to what we read in. Uh, Paul and the letters, uh, Hebrews and, and whatnot. But I also want to kind of focus on, there's there are four big, very much overlapping uh, Old Testament themes that converge in the cross of Jesus. And if we're going to understand what really happened on the cross, I think we got to understand how these four themes kind of play into that and... and um, they're they're all hugely important, and I'm gonna and and because they overlap so much, this is one reason I didn't want to break this up into several episodes because all this kind of overlaps. Um, so I'm gonna address the, those four things today. I hope you'll stick around for this. Uh, I think this is going to be an important conversation. It may be, boy, I hate to oversell this. It, it may be more important than. Um, a lot of other things that we've talked about here. So stick around, uh, take a deep breath, get you something to drink, go to the bathroom, and then uh, buckle in and hang on. Now, when it comes to talking about the cross, we, we just cannot deny that the crucifixion of Jesus is one of the most compelling and captivating images in human history. Um, before any of the the preaching or the explanation or the lectures or the various theories of atonement that 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 come out of this, beyond all that and before all that, the image of Jesus on the cross moves us. It always has. And of course, we, we need the theories and the explanations. We need to think very deeply about the crucifixion because without that, all of us uh, preachers and theologians and lecturers, uh, we have the tendency to just go wandering off into the weeds and end up doing all kinds of bizarre things sometimes. So we need to think it through. Um, we're told to love God with our minds in addition to our heart and our soul and our strength. So we need to think it through deeply, uh, prayerfully, rooted in scripture and in conversation with with some wise spirit-filled men and women Be behind all that and in addition to that in in places that sometimes you can only get to through uh, art and music there's something about the story of Jesus being crucified for us that moves us down deep in in places beyond rational thought when we retell the story of Jesus' crucifixion, it's not just—it's not just he died for our sins, and that's that. That's there's a story 
into which all of our frustrations and, and questions and grief and sorrows can be placed into context. And we find a sense that a God who we might not even have named yet is there, present with us in the middle of it all. At the heart of the, the way the, the New Testament presents the cross is the fact that something happened on Good Friday that made the world a very different place than it was that morning. Now, nobody really knew that at the time, right? The, the disciples ran away, they hid, they were afraid for their own lives. But what was it that made the world a very different place on the, by the evening of Good Friday? That was the moment the Bible tells us, when a victory was won, which does not have to be won again. It needs to be implemented, but it not, does not have to be won again. And in light of the resurrection, three days later, the first Christians looked back at the crucifixion, and the way they told the story was to say that the resurrection happened precisely because the underlying victory was won when Jesus died on the cross. So what are we talking about here? What kind of, what kind of victory was won by Jesus on that cross? And how did, how did dying on the cross win a victory over anything? Well, that's where we're going to start. So a, a key passage in unraveling this is in Colossians 2.15, where Paul says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, and he triumphed over them. Now, if you read the crucifixion story, it didn't exactly look like that to anybody, did it? In fact, it looked like the exact opposite of that. It looked as though the rulers and the, the authorities of the world, starting with Herod and Pilate and the chief priests, they were the ones who were publicly disgracing and triumphing over Jesus, right? I mean, that's how it looked. It looked like his claims of, of being the Messiah were, were just completely turned on their head, debunked, right? Because messiahs don't get killed, least of all by their own people. But here we are. Jesus was now being publicly humiliated in the worst imaginable way, which would seem to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah. And by the way, um, I, I've, got a, I've got a link. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Um, I'm saying this right now and hoping I can find this on the internet someplace. Um, there was, back in the 90s, I think, there was... Um, a medical doctor who did a, a, a complete um, breakdown of what physiologically and biologically happened would have happened to Jesus on the cross. And this was published in the Journal, Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, and he did a lot of research into, into uh, how crucifixions took place in the first century. Um, I don't want to get off on all, on all that. I, like, I don't want to get waylaid by and, and chase that rabbit. Um, but it is sort of interesting if you want to understand biologically what happened. Um, and I'll, if, I'm going to, I'm going to promise here that I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Hopefully, I can find the, um, hopefully I can find a, a link to it. I have a copy of it. I, I think I can find it online. But anyway, I'll put that there. Um, but it, it was a very humiliating kind of death. Okay. And, and again, that would seem to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah, the fact that he was executed in that way very publicly. But Paul says, Colossians 2.15, no. Actually, the real truth of it was that Jesus was holding them up to contempt. He triumphed over them. Now, how on earth does that make any sense at all? Well, we'll get to that. But this idea of a victory that was won resonates right on through the, 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 the entire New Testament. For, for instance, um, Revelation 5, you get this, this uh, picture, this glorious vision 
Um, when the veil between heaven and earth is kind of drawn back and John the apostle sees what's going on in the heavenly dimension there. And understand, this is not a, a vision of some kind of ultimate future in heaven, okay? It's a vision of, of what for John is happening right now in the heavenly realm, suddenly visible to the eyes of John uh, while he was on the island of Patmos. And what he sees is the heavenly court worshiping God the Father. And he sees a mighty angel holding a scroll. And the Jews and the first century Christians would have, would have understood that scroll. When they, when they saw that image or read that image, they would have understood that scroll in heaven as representing God's purposes and decrees for humans and for the world. And the angel holds out the scroll and says, who is worthy to open this scroll? And then we're, we're told that John weeps because no one was found who could do it. But then one of the elders in this heavenly vision says to John, don't cry. Look, the Lion of Judah has conquered. He's won the victory. And he has the right to open the scroll, to take God's plan for the world forward. And John looks, and instead of a lion, he sees a lamb, as if it had been slain. And he takes the scroll, the lamb, the lion, the lamb, from the right hand of God the Father. And we're told that the heavenly host sang a new song, and they say, you are worthy to open this scroll, to unroll God's purposes, to take forward God's rescuing plan for creation, because verses 9 and 10, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed for God's people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth, which is a theme that comes back again and again in the book of Revelation. So, you know, we, we, have, um, we have kind of sold ourselves short in the Western tradition, the, the Western Christian tradition. Uh, and, and for me, personally, it has taken me a lifetime um, to finally start seeing how these pieces fit together into a coherent whole. And um, I, I am convinced that we need better teaching in our churches and sometimes better teaching in our seminaries. Um, because I used to say, well, Jesus died so that I can go to heaven, or, or he died because I'm a sinner. He took the penalty, so I'm all right now. Well, saying that is better than not saying that, and it's not even that that's necessarily wrong, okay? I, mean, I want you to hear me say that. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But there is a much, much bigger picture going on in Scripture than the Cliff Notes version that I just gave you, right? Jesus died so that we can be rescued from slavery and bondage to the forces of darkness, and so we can then be made into what God intended us for, be, for, for us to be all along, a kingdom of priests who bear his image and carry forth his, his healing love into the world, exercising wise benevolent, loving care over all of creation. And this, my friends, this is our task as followers of Jesus, to reflect God into the world. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are, we are freed or liberated from sin, not just so that we can get our legal troubles sorted out and not be thought of as sinners anymore, though that's important. But so we can reassume that priestly task for the benefit of the whole rest of the world. And the point is that that is possible only because the lamb who is the lion won the victory on the cross. And by the evening of Good Friday, that had happened. And three days later, when Jesus was raised from the dead, the victory over death was the sign that the victory over sin had been won as well. 
Now, I, I said last week that the kingdom of God and the cross of Jesus, which are the, are the two major themes in all four Gospels, have kind of been difficult for us as Christians historically to, to put together. You know, some churches really gravitate toward the kingdom stuff and other churches really gravitate toward the, uh, the, the cross imagery and what that means, right? But holding those two things both together has sometimes been difficult for us. Um, in all four Gospels, those two themes absolutely belong together and they mean what they're supposed to mean in relation to, uh, to, to one another. But one of the interesting things that you see when you read books about the meaning of the cross, and I've read quite a few of them, is that the, 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 the people, theologians, ministers, whatever, who write those books tend again and again to kind of jump straight to Paul and maybe the book of Hebrews to try to, try to talk about what the cross means. And they hardly touch on the Gospels. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Gospels are just sort of the backstory. You know, Jesus was crucified. Here's what it looked like. But you have to go to Paul or Hebrews to, to get what it all meant. And that's just completely wrong. Um, the Gospels um, offer a, a rich set of interpretations of the meaning of the cross. And unless you take that seriously, I think you're going to read Paul wrong. The Gospels are in fact telling the single story of how Jesus inaugurates the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, through the defeating of the powers of evil. And, and that just makes, I mean, that's that makes common sense, right? I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna inaugurate a new kingdom, you gotta take you gotta dethrone or defeat whoever is running things now, right? I mean, that's just the way things work. We're we're familiar with that, right? And let me let me make a point here about that, just so we're all clear and we're all on the same page before we move forward. And I and I think I may have said this before. Um, there's a thread running through the Gospels that we need to be clear on that we're not always clear on. Um, and I'm going to sketch that out real quick here. When Jesus is is tempted by the devil in Luke four chapter uh, verses five and six. The devil takes, one of the things that the devil does, one of the temptations there, the devil takes Jesus up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So you, you catch that? The devil is claiming there in front of Jesus to have authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. What is absolutely fascinating about that count the account, is that in Jesus' response to him there, Jesus doesn't challenge him on that. He doesn't say, hold on just a minute. You're wrong about that. You don't have authority over anything. You're lying. Jesus doesn't say that. And the reason he doesn't is because in that instance, the devil seemed to be telling the truth. And we know that because later in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, and, and prepares for his own death, he says to his disciples, he says, now is the judgment of this world. And get this, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. So just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, now is the time to overthrow the ruler of this world and to install a new king. And then, of course, after the resurrection, when Jesus is about to, send, to ascend to his father and our father, he tells his disciples, Matthew 28, uh, verses eight, verse 18, he says, absolutely, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The world now has a new king. And the devil no longer has all authority on earth. Of course, the devil is still very much engaged in some what we might call guerrilla warfare, right? Making trouble wherever he can. And he has, he has people who are content to do his bidding, and they make trouble. But he's not in charge anymore. 
because Jesus won that victory. Jesus' kingdom also inaugurates a whole new definition of power, okay? Um, remember in, in Mark chapter 10, when they're walking toward Jerusalem and um, James and John come up to Jesus and they say, hey, we've, we've got a kind of a favor to ask. Um, why don't you let us uh, sit, you know, one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom? That'd be okay? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you, are you really able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? As it turns out, there are two people on his right and on his left when he is enthroned as king. They're hanging on crosses on either side of him. And of course, one of the most famous passages in the Gospels about the meaning of the cross is a little further down in Mark 10, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the interesting thing there is that many, many people, even biblical scholars, have failed to see that that saying means what it means within that overall conversation between Jesus and James, James and John as a whole. Because what Jesus said, says is, listen, my, my kingdom is all about redefining power. Because the, the rulers of this world do power one way, you know, by, by bullying and bossing and coercing people and kicking people out of the way. But we're going to do it another way. And he says, let the one who wants to be greatest be your servant. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point is that you, you understand the meaning of the cross when you understand that at its heart is the redefinition of how power works. So the Gospels are all about the, the redefinition of the Messianic agenda. There were, there were many people in Jesus' day, and we've talked a little bit about this, who were, who were longing for a warrior king, a warrior messiah, a new David who would come in and kill the great Goliath of Rome. And there were certainly other messianic movements before Jesus and even after Jesus. And in every case, there's a little complex of ideas that goes with it, always within a, a sense that Israel's God has done it before. He's liberated us from our enemies before, and sooner or later, he's going to send us a king through whom he'll do it again. That's the hope. And Jesus is constantly saying yes to the hope and no to the way they're thinking the hope is going to work out. It is a different battle with a different victory because it is a different enemy. Not that, not that Rome was, you know, a, a perfectly good and benign government. It wasn't. Not that Herod and the chief priests were good people. They weren't. But Jesus sees that underneath them, underneath the Herods and the Caesars and the Pilots and the chief priests, there's a darker force, a force that he calls Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, which is, which is kind of, in, in, in Greek, in, it's kind of, a, kind of a shadowy term, right? Um, it's not... Uh, terribly specific. It's it's not always we we tend to think of it as a as a personal name, right? Satan. Um, it's not really even that. It's a it's a it's a shadowy term. It's not terribly specific. It's not even always a personal term. But it's but it's something very real, just the same. And that evil force surges into one place and seems to concentrate itself at this very point. And so the whole agenda from, from the Psalms, um, Psalms like Psalm 89 or Psalm 72 or, or the great passages in Isaiah that, that talk about the coming wonderful day, those things are still there. They matter. Jesus is, in fact, as Israel's inaugurated king, 
Jesus is going to make the world right again at last. But Jesus has glimpsed, because he's seen it in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in Zechariah and elsewhere. He's seen that the way that this will happen is not going to be by military revolution, but by the Son of Man going to his death at the hands of the enemy, paradoxically to win the victory over the real enemy, the real dark forces. And again, he does that by exercising an entirely different kind of power, the power of all-conquering love. The Son of Man loved me and gave himself for me, is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Another big theme, and one that brings some of these other things into focus, has to do with how Jesus sees himself in relation to the temple, and the way that 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 that, that comes out in the celebration of the Passover. So the the temple is is a really 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 big thing, all the way through Jewish history, because the temple and the tabernacle before it were for the Jews a sign of heaven and earth being held together, okay? So at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, heaven and earth are a single creation. And the Garden of Eden is very much like a, a great temple. And if that sounds strange to you, um, you need to understand that that's, that's the way a lot of Old Testament scholars are, are reading that these days. Um, there was a book um, put out a couple of years ago by an Old Testament scholar that really delved down into the literature of the, of the ancient Near East. And he says there's a lot of, there's a lot of temple imagery in there. I, I'm not going to go into all that now. Maybe sometime I'll do a whole episode about that. But the book is called um, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, and it's written by John Walton. I'll put a link in the show notes. He does a very good job of, of sort of uh, making that case pretty convincingly. Okay, um, But... The, the, the Garden of Eden is, is very much, there's, there's a lot of temple imagery there. And if you're not really clued into the, the kind of literature of the ancient Near East, you, you'll probably miss it, as we all do, right? Um, but God's, the, the Garden of Eden is the place where heaven and earth are brought together. Remember, God is, is dwelling right there with Adam and Eve, right? It's the place where Heaven and earth meet, okay? Um, you can look at that book and get the whole picture of that. But when all that goes horribly wrong in Genesis 3 with the fall, the narrative flows from there to the call of Abraham, but, but way beyond that even, past the exodus to the tabernacle. Because the whole point is, when, is that when Moses is giving the instructions to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, the tabernacle itself, and, and you just pay attention to the language and you see this, the tabernacle itself is like a new little creation. There's lots of creation imagery in the constructing of that tabernacle. But if you're not looking for that, you most of us Westerners probably miss it, okay? And, and I could prove that, but that would be a whole long, another big study in itself. But trust me on this. I hate to say that, um, because I always tell people don't trust any, don't never trust a preacher. <laughs> never trust them. They're all liars. No, we're no, we're not. We're not. Um, just some of us are. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But it is a it is a forward pointing sign to the fact that one day God is going to do the whole Eden thing all over again, and that's that's really wrapped up in the idea of the tabernacle, and the Jews knew that. Okay. Um, and the Jews, with, with, with much fear and trembling, have to learn how to live with this extraordinary and dangerous thing in their midst, this tabernacle this, where heaven and earth meet right there among them, coming together right there among them. And it's the same thing later when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Throughout Jesus' ministry, 
he is he is constantly saying and and you got again you just have to open your eyes to see this he is constantly saying in symbol in hint and in parable that he is upstaging the temple if you wanted to get forgiveness in ancient Israel how'd you do that where'd you go well you'd go to the temple and you'd offer the sacrifice you'd do the things you're supposed to do you tell the priest the things you're supposed to tell him and you have forgiveness and it's sociological as well as theological okay Jesus comes along and he says simply your sins are forgiven nobody has to go to the temple for that when Jesus is around and there are there are a great number of more allusions to this kind of thing all through the Gospels. But the point is that Jesus is continually behaving as though he is the temple in person. And that explains why when he comes to Jerusalem for the last time in what we call the, the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, there is a clash and the temple is right at the very center of it. We're told, beginning in Luke 19, verse 37, that is, as Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on the donkey, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees there in the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they were to keep silent even the stones would cry out. Well, what stones is he talking about? And as Jesus comes in sight of the city, he begins to weep for it. And he says, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days are going to come upon you when your enemies will build a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And in that scene, Jesus pronounces judgment on the city and its rulers. And the temple is the central focus. They're stones because its rulers had failed to see what God was doing. The way of peace which Jesus himself was offering. But this idea of heaven and earth coming together in Jesus as the new temple is also why in parables like um, the, the, the prodigal son and the other two parables that go with it in Luke 15, the, the woman with the lost coin and the shepherd with the lost sheep, the point of all three of those parables is, is to explain why Jesus is having a party with all the wrong people which is how Luke chapter 15 begins. And so Jesus tells these stories and he says, listen, the angels are having a party in heaven right now because people are repenting. So isn't it fitting that we should have a party here on earth as well? If something is happening in heaven, shouldn't it happen here too? Jesus is trying to bring heaven and earth together through himself, the temple. Jesus is saying that where he is, heaven and earth are being joined together again. That is where new creation is happening. That is the reality to which all along the temple had been pointing. And all of his feastings and festivals and healings, those are all pointing in the same direction. And so the, the story that the Gospels tell all focus also on the final Passover. And this overlaps, right? And you can actually figure out almost everything you need to figure out about the meaning of the cross from the fact that Jesus chose Passover as the moment to go to Jerusalem and do what he needed to do. And most of us just read that it was Passover and we just kind of think that it's a, well, that's just a, it's a, it's a calendar marker, right? Luke is is telling us what time of year this happened. He's given us some, some landmarks so that we can follow the story. But it is so much more than that. Jesus chose this moment because he wanted to tap into all the imagery of the Passover to interpret what he was doing. He didn't choose Hanukkah 
He didn't choose the Day of Atonement, which might have made more sense to us, right? But no, he chose Passover as the moment to go and die. So why Passover? Because in the Old Testament, Passover is the great victory over the dark, enslaving power. The power of Pharaoh, the power of Egypt, the power that had enslaved the people of God for 400 and some odd years. The power that was threatening to snuff out the promises of God to Abraham and through Abraham to the whole world, which we read about in Genesis 12. Passover says God is coming down to where the people are in a mess and are enslaved and he is rescuing them, bringing them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And Passover leads directly to the giving of the law and then particularly, here we go again, the building of the tabernacle. It is because that they're rescued from slavery that heaven and earth can now be reconstructed as, as one in their midst. Now, for, for many of us Western Christians, we look at this whole big story and we say, well, you know, God wanted to do some things through Israel, but that didn't work out. The, the whole Israel plan kind of backfired and went wrong and didn't work out. So God just decided to scrap it and he came up with a new plan, sent Jesus. And some people say, well, that new plan's the church. Uh, down with Israel, up with the church. And for many people, when they, when they summarize the story of the Bible, Israel just kind of sits there in the background as sort of an example of something. But Israel is not just an example. Israel is God's rescuing project for the whole world. The problem is the rescuing project itself needs rescuing. It's kind of like a kind of like a fire truck, you know, racing off on its way to a fire, and he and it it races around a corner too fast and ends up in a ditch. And so now somebody's got to get the fire engine out of the ditch and back on the road before it can go on and deal with the fire. Israel is God's means of rescuing the world, but but the exile, as all the prophets make very clear is when Israel finally realizes that it has failed, as we all have. And so now what's God going to do? He's going to do the only thing he can do. He's going to respond with a fresh act of divine grace. And that fresh grace comes at the point in the story of Isaiah where we find the promise of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. And that fresh grace comes at the point in the story of Jeremiah where we find the promise about the covenant being renewed, Jeremiah 31. And that fresh grace comes at the point in the prophecy of Ezekiel where we find the promise of an extraordinary new temple and Israel's God coming back in person to dwell in the midst of his people once again. And all of this comes rushing forward together when we read the beginning of John's gospel and we see that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. The Greek word there is eskenosin, which you don't have to remember that, but that is the word for tabernacle or tent. Um, the, the, um, the, a lot of the translations say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the word there is the word for tabernacle. It, he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. John is telling us that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing Israel's God coming back in person. And when Israel's God comes back in the person of Jesus, it doesn't look like a blazing fire it doesn't look like the whirling wheels of Ezekiel. It looks like this young Jewish prophet with love of God in his heart and the light of prayer in his eyes, denouncing the rich and careless, rescuing the poor and helpless, transforming the meaning of the kingdom by his constant parables and his turning everything upside down in the Sermon on the Mount and ultimately going off to do what had to be done in Jerusalem, to meet with his friends at the table where he breaks bread and drinks wine and speaks of his body and his blood, and then going off to confront the great Pharaoh, the great Satan, the great Babylon, 
and to win the victory and set his people free for once and for all. See, the the gospel stories don't just tell the story of Jesus. They tell the story of Jesus as the focal point of the story both of God and Israel. That's where the entire story of the Bible has been going all along. They tell the story of Jesus as the story of God. This is where God was finally going to reveal who he really was and how he really was unveiling his own nature as uncompromised, unyielding love. Which is what John tells us in in John 13, verse 1, when he says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. But the Gospels also, and this this is part of the crucial point here, the Gospels are also telling the story of how evil did its worst and was exhausted. Jesus, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God and, and immediately there are, there are tortured souls shrieking at him in the synagogue. There are, there are scribes and Pharisees and Herodians plotting in the background trying to kill him. And so when they finally come to arrest him, Jesus says in Luke twenty two fifty three, 53, this is your hour and the power of darkness. What he's saying is, the ruler of this world, the great Satan, the great Satan, this is when he is going to do his worst. This is when evil is going to do its worst in the world. And he has has sensed all through his public career that just as the kingdom of God is going forward, the darkness is closing in and getting in the way and trying to stop it. And Jesus knows that it has to come. Why? Because this is how the victory is going to be won, by evil doing its worst to Jesus himself and being exhausted in the process. And you see this in places like Acts chapter 4. You know, um, the disciples are being threatened by the authorities, and when they go back to their friends and they pray, and they pray Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot, plot futile things? And they say, that's what's going on here. We've got Herod and Pilate in this city plotting against the Lord's anointed. But the psalm goes on and the prayer goes on to celebrate the fact that God has vindicated the Messiah over the forces of evil. Evil has done its worst and it has been defeated. And the resurrection shows that clearly and decisively. And so as we read the story of Jesus going about his ministry, we see him doing all kinds of things that would have, you know, in the world around him, that would have made him impure or unclean. And the, and the religious leaders don't know how to deal with that. They're having a fit about all that, right? Um, Jesus goes into feast with people who are sinners. And people assume that Jesus is becoming a sinner himself. But for some reason, it doesn't really turn out that way. Instead, he seems to to take the full, full force of that uncleanness and exhaust it so that even people like Zacchaeus end up transformed and renewed and redeemed from his former life. It's like when Jesus touches that corpse in Luke chapter 7 or when he's touched by the woman with the flow of blood. All of that should make him unclean, but it doesn't. He touches the leper. That should make him unclean, but it doesn't. Instead, people get healed. The corpse gets raised. The the flow of blood stops. The leper is cleansed. And finally, he goes out to die instead of Barabbas. He goes out to die along somebody who says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is not the ultimate goal here, okay? The ultimate goal is resurrection. Paradise is the resting place while we wait for resurrection. And again and again, we find Jesus saying, I will do this for you. I will take your uncleanness. I will take your sinful status, your sinful nature, and I will exhaust it. And that is what his death is all about. So John 13 when Jesus is talking about going off to die and Peter gets all, all cocky and, and, and blustery and, and he says, well, that's not going to happen. You're not going to be dying. I'll lay down my life for you. 
And in the kind of classic irony all the t- that we see all the time in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, really? <laughs> Are you really going to de- lay down your life for me, Peter? Because the whole story is about Jesus laying down his life for us. And as he says in John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And the resurrection reveals the fact that this is how the victory is won. And and all four Gospels say it. This is what it looks like when Israel's God comes back in person like he always promised, to do for Israel and the world what they could never do for themselves. And to complete the purpose for which God called Abraham in the first place. And to complete the purpose for which God called Adam and Eve in the first place to be the ones who would be the true image bearers of God, carrying forth God's image before the rest of the world, and in his name, bestowing his love and blessing and healing and justice and peace to the world. So as we look at the cross in light of all that, our only appropriate response can be to reflect it back in praise and gratitude and adoration. So how does this all work out? How can we, how can we think it through and, and make it our own, both in, in thought and in action? Because we need to figure out how this works, right? We, we need to figure out how this works out in practice in, in our culture today in the 21st century because it's no good simply repeating the, the, the tired old evangelical slogans from the 50s and 60s. The world has moved on. People aren't concerned about the things that they were concerned about in the 50s and 60s. People aren't even sure there's a God anymore. Many, 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 many people. When we stand in front of the cross, we find that our lives are transformed and our vocation is renewed or perhaps given for the, for the first time. And that, of course, takes us back to Revelation chapter 5. We're, we're now to be a kingdom of priests And that goes back to Exodus 19, where Israel is told, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be, in other words, the true image-bearing people for the Gentile world. Because the problem that the cross is the answer to is so much deeper than those of us in, in the Western Christian traditions have normally imagined. And the solution, then, is all the more magnificent. So, so let, me, let me try to summarize our problem in all this as, as, as concisely and succinctly, succinctly as I can. We, we Christians in the West have, have imagined that the name of the game is to go to heaven when we die, right? Sound familiar? I have preached those sermons, taught those Bible classes the same as every other preacher and teacher. And we've, we've often talked about that in terms of our soul leaving this body and the soul going to heaven. And some Christians even um, have thought that this is a good thing because, you know, our, our bodies are kind of shabby and flabby and unattractive and a lot of us would sort of kind of be glad to get rid of it, uh, um, even be freed from it, Right? But there are two huge problems with that view. The per- first problem is that if you, if you go to the first century and you're looking for somebody who is teaching that the body is a worn out, corrupt old thing is, and the soul is the real thing that matters and the point is to leave earth and go to heaven when it's all done, there, there is a person who's teaching that. And his name is Plutarch. Not Paul, not Peter, and certainly not Jesus. Plutarch is a follower of Plato, who kind of believed that, you know, everything in this earth was horrible and the the soul was the only thing that was any good. And so because Plutarch is a follower of Plato, we'd call him a, a Platonist. 
And anybody who believes kind of that idea is, is in some way a Platonist too, right? Plutarch is a, is a pagan. He's not a Christian and he's not a Jew. The Christian hope is not what is sometimes called pie in the sky when you die, right? The Christian hope is for the new heavens and the new earth where justice and righteousness dwell and into which we will be raised from the dead to be more like ourselves than we, we have ever been. Uh, N.T. Wright, who has uh, taught me a lot of this stuff, talks about how you know, you're, you're out and about in the world and you run into somebody who, who you've known for a long time and has been really sick. Maybe he's got cancer or has had cancer or something. And, and you see him and you say something like, oh, poor guy, he's just a shadow of his former self. Right? You've heard that. Well, if you are in Christ, if you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you today are just a shadow of your future self. There is a real you, more like you than you've ever imagined, that God created, but that has been enslaved and beaten down by various kinds of brokennesses and sin. And God loves that you and wants by the Spirit to help resurrect that you, to transform you and help you grow into being that you. And that is possible because everything that has hindered you from being that was dealt with completely on Good Friday. The second problem with the idea that my soul needs to go to heaven is that I'm a sinner. I'm flawed and marred and imperfect. And well, I can't really go to heaven like that, can I? Um, so I need a fix for my moral mess. And so what we've done is we've tended to, to moralize our, our identity, our anthropology, our understanding of who we are as humans. In other words, according to most of Western Christianity, the central feature of our existence as human beings is that we're morally flawed. And we've imagined then that the only real question to ask about being human is, have we kept the rules or not? And of course, we all know the answer to that, right? We haven't. So we solve that by saying that Jesus had kept them for us. He's paid the penalty for, the, for that. And again, that's fine in a sense. I, I'm not at all saying that, that, that all that is necessarily wrong. But again, it is a terribly incomplete picture of what's actually going on than the story that the Bible is actually telling. That piece is in there, sure. But there's a much bigger story that it sits within. It's a, it's a piece of the picture but without the context of the rest of the picture, even that piece becomes skewed and twisted and it occupies a place in our collective thinking far beyond what it was intended to be. Being human was never a matter of keeping the rules. As we read Genesis 1 through 3, that's the, that's the one and only thing we seem to have latched onto and we've made it the whole thing. But there's so much more going on in Genesis 1 through 3 than the breaking of a couple of rules. And to see it that way is to put the knowledge of good and evil before the knowledge of God, which is just exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Being human was always about being image bearers, reflecting God into the world. And that's clear in Genesis 1 and 2 if we slow down and pay attention and don't just jump straight away from creation to chapter 3. And there are some rules that Adam and Eve are given, for sure. And there's some rules for us, too. But the rules are there as the guidelines to enable you to be a free, glad image bearer. And so if you mess around with the rules, the problem is not just that you broke the rules and you're now guilty as sin, so we say, but that because, because you've found yourself in that predicament, you're not able now to do the image-bearing stuff. 
And as a result, we've had this idea of the soul going to heaven, and we've had this idea that the only thing that matters is rule-keeping, either us doing it or Jesus doing it on our behalf. And because that's the lens through which we view everything in Scripture, we've ended up turning the New Testament's vision of Jesus' death into something much more like what you would find in the ancient pagan world with an angry God and an innocent victim. And sadly, that's the impression a lot of Christians, a lot of non-Christians have, have gotten even if that's not what is preached in the pulpits. That what they're supposed to believe is that the gospel is all about God being very angry with us because we failed to keep the rules. But fortunately, somebody comes in and takes all that wrath for us, and remarkably, it happens to be his own son. And it's not really surprising that a lot of people hear that story and they think, he. If that's God, I don't really want anything to do with that. He sounds kind of like a bully and maybe even a little bit like an abuser. And the problem today is that lots of people have had experiences with bullies and abusers, sometime within their own family. And those bullies often say, often right in the middle of the abuse, you know, I really do love you, right? We, we know that story. We've heard that. If it's not happened to us, it's happened to somebody we know. And so to have a God who kind of looks like a bully and abuser, but who also says, I really love you, just makes matters worse for people like that. And they say, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And so many of those people hear John 3.16, and what they actually hear, and this is not what it says, but what they actually hear is for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. Somehow we've got all that wrong. And I and others, I'm not the only one who thinks this, but we think it stems from a misunderstanding of both our created identity, who we were supposed to be, and the role we were to play in this world, and our future hope. So it ends up being a a moralized anthropology and a platonic eschatology, if you can handle that many ology words. And the solution to all that is to recover a full biblical view of how that all works. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And what we've done with that phrase, according to the Scriptures, is we've said, okay, well, the Messiah died for our sins because we know that we're sinful and we deserve to die, but God killed Jesus instead. And, and I can find three proof texts in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, maybe Daniel 7, that all kind of seem to say that. And so there, that's according to the Scriptures. But that is not what the phrase according to the Scriptures means. When Paul says that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, the phrase, according to the scripture, means that this huge, flowing narrative from Genesis all the way through, not just a few proof texts, that is what, that is the story that is encapsulated entirely in Jesus' life, ministry, and death. It's talking about the single saving plan of God for all of creation. And it is according to that plan that the Messiah died for our sins. We need that whole Old Testament story because it is a love story. So sometime, do, do this. Do the, I'm, I'm serious about this. Do this, please, please, and do this soon. Sit down sometime, really soon, please, in a quiet place where you're, where you're not going to be disturbed and, and take a little bit of time and read Isaiah chapter 40 through 55. Isaiah 40 through 55. Read that all together in one sitting without stopping. Make sure you're not disturbed while you're doing it. Give yourself the, the space and the time to hear what hear that in, in, the whole, in the entire flow, you know, as it goes. Please do that. And, and when you read that, listen for this theme because you're going to hear it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. You are my people. And I know you're in a mess. 
I know it's all gone horribly wrong, but I love you so much that I am going to do everything in my power to rescue you. Folks, that is the story that dominates the skyline as far as Jesus himself was concerned. And that is why Jesus came to become Israel's king and to give his life as a ransom for many, to set us free from the dark forces that enslaved us, and then to renew us to our original vocation, to be God's image bearers, to be a kingdom of priests carrying God's healing love to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever fine podcasts are heard. Please visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast and check out our website, www.thejesussociety.com. You can also find episodes of the Jesus Society podcast on YouTube and Odyssey. And if you just search for us there, you'll find us. If you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website and find out how. We'll have links to all this in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.